and welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap from what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty. Thanks for listening. On this edition of Restoring the Soul, Michael welcomes back our good friend, Reverend Dr. Dennis Edwards. If you'd like to listen to previous conversations with Dennis, look up episodes number 132 and 150. Number 132 is titled, Turning the Tables on Injustice, and episode number 150 is about his book, Might from the Margins. Now, biblical humility is the main topic on today's podcast, and the need for more of it in our world, especially from the church. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Now, a quick fun fact about Dennis that I'd like to share before I hand it over to Michael. He once appeared on the TV game show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? (laughs) Now, without any further delay, here's your host, Michael John Cusick. Well, welcome back to the Restoring the Soul podcast, Reverend Dr. Dennis Edwards. Hi, it's really good to be with you. This is your third appearance, so one more and you've got the record on oh, our podcast. Oh my goodness, I, I'm honored. I, I really just appreciate chatting with you and hearing from you, so thank you. I, that's really cool. Oh, you're welcome. I, I told uh, Jenny, who's our assistant here at the ministry, that you're like our resident theologian, that even though you don't live here, that I always want to reach out to you about different topics and and know that though though you're a black man, and that's the original reason that we made contact because of your article in Christianity Today, as you wrote from your perspective, I think that article was called The Revolution Will Not Be Videoed, if I recall, that uh, I've come to appreciate your writing on just so many different levels. And so before we jump in, I want to give a shout out to your, your most recent book, Might from the Margins, uh, and help me with the subtitle, The Gospel and Its Power to Turn power. the Tables on Injustice. You got it. That's right. Thank you. So you, you go ahead and say it. Oh, well, the gospel's power to turn the tables on injustice. That's right. Yeah, we get the image of Jesus turning the tables. Even though I don't treat that passage in detail, we thought that was a good uh, image for people to have when they thought about the book. So for people that aren't familiar with the book or have not listened to a previous podcast with you, give a, a synopsis of what you were trying to communicate in Might from the Margins. Yes, thank you. I I really wanted to hit at the notion that people that we often overlook, and when I say we, I mean that in a broad sense of Christians, but but sometimes in America, it's really white Christianity, that people who get overlooked can be um, ethnic minorities, uh, women, uh, people with physical challenges, uh, people don't fit conventional images of beauty. I mean, the list can go on. But those folks that we tend to marginalize as a society often represent Jesus best because in their marginal status, they, they, they show the way of Christ, uh, who himself lived as a marginal, I'll say a marginalized Jew, uh, and his time. So I try to encourage anybody who's on the margin to, to help, uh, join in solidarity and to change the, the, uh, trajectory of Christianity in America because there's power in our marginal status. So as a, as a New Testament professor, talk a little bit about how they represent that, that sense of the person of Christ and his marginalization. Yeah, you know, I'll take one example. In fact, I was just reading something just right before our chat that reinforced my own um, work in First Peter. I was I was looking in First Peter. I wrote a commentary on First Peter. Uh, came out a few years ago in the Story of God um, Bible Commentary series, and I was noticing that as I looked at the the discussion uh, directed toward household slaves in chapter two, and then. Um, toward women in chapter three, that these folks who would have been on the margins of their society, women with a, um, a questionable uh, uh, status as citizens and slaves as non-citizens, wind up being people who are asked to emulate Jesus in their marginal status. And really, if we paid attention, they now become the models of Jesus for the rest of the community. So that's one example of how folks who are in the most vulnerable position actually wound up representing Jesus. He says, even Peter says in that uh, chapter two passage that when they are um, 
enduring this unjust, and he does call it unjust, suffering as a slave. He says, you are following in the footsteps of Christ, you know, and he uses that. You're following in his steps. He is an example. And now they become examples for the rest of the community. So that's that's just one illustration. But you can take one other quick one is in the Gospels. One of the places where Jesus gets angry or indignant is in uh, Mark's Gospel in chapter 10 when they are the disciples are trying to keep children from coming to Jesus. And it says that he was indignant and he said to them, let the children come because the kingdom belongs to such as these. Now that's something that we preach on a lot. And maybe every time there's a, a baptism of a child or, or, or a dedication, we cite that passage, but notice how Jesus is indignant when we marginalize children, vulnerable members of every society. So I take those as examples to say, you know what? We're supposed to learn our lessons from the children. That's what Jesus has shown us. We learn our lessons from the slaves in the New Testament. And, and even Paul will call himself a slave, borrowing Im- slave imagery. Uh, we And we take our lessons from women who have been on the sidelines. We certainly have seen that when we talk about the Easter story and women who are marginalized become the first evangelists. So I just think it's the way of, of the Lord to take those who, uh, uh, as Paul would say, the things that um, he didn't come with a particular powerful display, but rather it was through his weakness that he could show the power of Christ. Yeah. You know, uh, thank you for that. I've read Mike from the, from the margins two times now. Oh my um, goodness. <laughs> the, the, the second time I, I marked it up and it's all dog-eared, but what struck me is that, um, in reading the book, how you really just point to scripture after scripture after scripture, and you quote a lot of different people from history and theology and, and, um, sociology, but it helped me to start to see scripture has this constant theme. This is not a parenthetical idea. This is really absolutely core to the gospel. Um, just a little insertion. When you're talking about that passage about let the children come to me, it's interesting how we'll often define um, Christ-likeness or godliness through a certain list of morality, whatever that might be. You know, don't dance, chew, or drink, or go with girls that do, or homosexuality, or abortion, or something like that. But Jesus says, if if you want to enter the kingdom, you have to become like a little child. And so, from the might from the margins perspective, maybe a question would be is, how childlike are you becoming? Yeah. Versus, you know, and and that's a picture of powerlessness. It is. uh, And I really appreciate that. You know, I, I went from working on Mike from the Margins, and I, and I think it's okay to mention a new project that I'm working on because I'm under contract with the, the publisher. I'm writing a book on humility. And what you just said really is, I mean, that, that encapsulates it because I think how childlike you are is, is this willingness to say embrace a status that is um, uh, not, you know, not, not uh, high in our world's way of thinking, right? So, uh, children are easily overlooked. In fact, some would even argue they were inconvenient in society. And, and yet they represent uh, the way we are supposed to be. Not just that passage, but there's another place, right? You remember when the disciples are arguing over who's the greatest, and it says Jesus takes a child and puts, and he, and he invites this child to be right into the middle of the discussion and, and points to this child and say, look, you know, like what you just said, if you want to be a part of the kingdom, be like this child. So we've got, um, I think that's a great question. And maybe I, I'll have to borrow from you in some way, because that's, that's a wonderful way to say it. How childlike are you willing to be? Yeah. Hmm. So let's, uh, let's jump into the topic of humility, because I'm actually writing a chapter on humility and some stuff that I'm doing. And, awesome. Um, Oh. We mentioned we mentioned Beth Moore before I hit record around hmm. leaving organizations. So we'll kind yeah. of try to bring all these things together. But okay. I think, and tell me if you agree, that humility is really misunderstood, that it's often discussed in terms of uh, less than, uh, you know, kind of the old worm theology was think right. less of yourself. And then someone said, trying to improve on that, that it's about thinking about yourself less. And I thought that's interesting, but, you know, let's try to do that together on the count of three. It's like thinking, not thinking about the purple elephant. But 
Uh, let me just throw out Thomas Merton's definition. He said that uh, humility is being precisely who you are at any given time with God and one other person. I, that that's that's good. I I I, I like that, and I'm I'm also um, I I didn't come across that particular quote, but Merton comes up a lot in things I'm reading, and and uh, I a friend of mine just happened to casually use the word grounded, and I said that works on so many levels because hummus is related to the word for humility and for ground, you know, so there's an etymological or earth anyway, there's an etymological connection, but there's this sense of not being um, uh, high, too high or too low. When you're grounded, you're at the right spot, the right level, as it were. I think there's something that I am trying. I don't want to give away too much about the book because it's not even out yet, but, but there's something that about biblical humility that starts with, a relationship with God. This is something that Aquinas would say as well, Thomas Aquinas. But but I think that gets um, missed in a lot of our discussions. So in a in a broad social context, even in a secular context, we do think of it as that kind of worm like um, theology, or even that uh, sense that you have to somehow deny who you are for the sake of others, or the sake of some other, I don't know, notion of, 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 of virtue. But I do think there's a, it's, there, there's a, um, appropriateness of how we see ourselves in God, in God's eyes. Um, uh, how we see ourselves in light of how God sees us is probably a better way to say it. And then how we interact with others. You are, I mean, just right on target there. I think in my view, I think that's fair assessment of humility. So let's let's uh, d- dive in a little deeper. How did you get into writing about humility? Did it extend as kind of the natural next step out of Might from the Margins? At first, I um I did not m- make that uh, explicit connection. It's something that I've been thinking about for a lot a long time in my life, and it's been um, maybe because I just get turned off by what I thought was actions that weren't humble, you know? So at least in my popular definition, I thought uh, I could see a lot of people getting elevated in society that I thought, oh, that they're not exhibiting Christ-like behavior, but we make them heroes, you know? Or even seeing crises in the church where leaders were falling and, and, uh, and organizations being centered around particular people made me, and this was going way back. I mean, going back to the eighties and such as some of your listeners who are old as me would remember some really noteworthy, you know, crash and burn scenarios, everything from, uh, Jim Baker and, uh, you know, Jimmy Swaggart and some of those household names in, in Christendom. Um, we just saw a lot of that. And I started wondering, I, I, this is as a young man in my uh, late 20s, about what is humility? And I thought I was trying to be a humble person, but I don't, but I don't think I understood it well. So this, it, so I, in talking with a publisher just about my pastoral experience and my interest in the New Testament, we together came to this topic and she was saying that there was something that they would like to see done that combined my pastoral sensitivities with my academic interests. And we together arrived at this. And I thought, you know, this resonates with what I've been feeling and thinking about as a leader for a lot of years. Yeah. And it, it does seem to really have uh, a trajectory from your last book, Mike from the margins, mm-hmm. who knows, maybe when you're all done, you'll have a trilogy where they all relate <laughs> together. So, uh, but I, I want to just come back to something you said, and that is um, this idea that Christians probably have not in the last four years, and that's code for politics of left and right, we've not been perceived as humble uh, by by the secular, non-religious, um, non-Christian outside. And I, I believe somewhere in my gut, less than... Um, having a Bible verse or a certain piece of data. But in my gut, I believe that if me, because I can't speak about them, meaning the church, but if, if me, the church, us, were to radically humble ourselves in the way that you're talking about, that we could stop all of our evangelistic programs, we could uh, shut down, you know, all of the different uh, ways that we're trying to bring Christianity forth because people would beat a path to oh, the door boy. to say, I want to be a part of this. 
Oh my. I Oh, you're talking my language. I I I think, you know, maybe even a step before the outside world is just the internal world. In fact, I I think there's something what I mean by that is the Christian world. Um so I hate to have the in out language, but I do mean something about our connectedness as Christians is that Humility, I think, is supposed to be, and at least the way it shows up in Philippians, is something that invites um, peace building, peacemaking, and concord within the community. And and I feel like if we can't do that, there's not a good witness to the rest of the world. So I don't I don't even think it's you know even first and foremost about our posture toward the quote unquote outsiders, but it's just even a posture toward each other people who also are professing Christ. I, I think of just the way, you know, when we read the book of Philippians and you have, the, of course, the beautiful um, expression of Christ's own self-emptying, which is, I, you know, of course, that's the primary model of humility. But all throughout that letter, this idea of being like-minded and, and considering of the others, even more important than yourself. I mean, there's just a posture there that I just think if we had that toward each other as Christians, you know, that would just be, that would be revolutionary right there. So I'm with you. I also think that in in doing that, there is a burden that's placed on those who have greater status. And that's the part that I think is is challenging. I'm not saying that, I mean, what I tried to say earlier, it's not about status per se. Maybe it's about relative power and privilege. Maybe that's a good way to say it. And there is an onus on folks in that place to to consider themselves, as Paul would say to the Romans, um, not to consider yourself more highly than you ought, you know. And so there is something to be said for not using your status as your calling card. But I definitely think there's a um, there's a there, there's a revolution that could happen if we could understand that humility is one of the practical outworkings of love. Yeah, and this has, uh, to use that word, practical, um, very, very, very practical implications. So as you're talking, I was thinking about because you used the word privilege, and that can be such a controversial word where there's people that have privilege that say, you know, privilege isn't a thing, or here's why you you can take advantage of uh, your, your sense of not having privilege, and it just is never a helpful conversation in many of the circles that I've heard. But what if it was reframed as a kind of umbrella over the topic of privilege or over the topic of left and right, and humility was what guided those conversations? Then if you came to me and said, you need to be aware of your privilege, I would, out of humility, go, wow, tell me about that. I want to learn from you. I want to hear your experience as opposed to get into a debate about what percentage I am or am not uh, (laughs) empowered that way. So humility opens up dialogue. Humility seems to create relationship and connection as opposed to create an us and them kind of adversarial relationship. Oh, I I definitely uh, agree with that. You know, going coming back to Philippians there at toward the end of the letter. Paul says, I plead with, and there's these two uh, female names, Euodia and Syntyche. He says, I plead with them that they be of the same mind, you know, and, uh, and then he appeals to, and this is, this is uh, a question in studies, but I won't go down that road too much, but he appeals to somebody that a lot of translations say my fellow, my, my yoke fellow, because that's the word in Greek, a yoke fellow. So we don't know if that's his name, Suzygus, or if he's just a, a theory, uh, 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 that's a metaphor. But the point is, there's this third party. And this third party is, got, is to help get these women to agree. And Paul sees them as valuable. They labored with him in the gospel, he says. And, and what you just said is that there's this sense that um, <laughs> if they can find a way to get past Whatever it is, if if humility can be the umbrella, then it actually can help resolve conflict or at least help us to negotiate those conflicts. It helps to bring an overall sense of health to the community. I mean, just think about it. This letter is written to however big a church this is in Philippi. And Paul will call out these two women leaders in his letter um, because it's that important to him 
that these leaders uh, find some concord. So I, I definitely think, I mean, I mean, the, 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 the message, the passage about Jesus in chapter two, who didn't use his, his, his uh, equality with God as something for personal gain. That's what we mean by privilege. I mean, it's the idea of whatever you have, rather than it being a source for personal identity enhancement or personal gain, um, rather you use it for others. And I think that's the concord part is Jesus then emptied himself, the, the kenosis that we talk about. So yes, I like the idea of humility as an umbrella because it then gets us to think and act in ways that are, that are more Christ-like. I also love how you talked about there's a, there's a kind of responsibility on the ones with power, with privilege, who have um, been afforded or achieved a level of certain status. Um, and that just like that Philippians 2 passage, Jesus chose to humble himself, to mm-hmm. empty himself. Yeah. And it's it's easy to stand in a position of rightness or authority or platform or denominational history of a certain doctrine as opposed to say, we are going to empty ourselves and don't know what the outcome will be, but we're going to sit down and listen to you. We want to hear your pain. We want to hear your struggle. We want to develop a relationship with you. And then we're going to come back to the text or to our community, and we're going to process this. Yeah. Um, because um, humility says, nope, we're good. We know what we stand for. <laughs> yeah, well, there's, oh, man, you're, you're, you've got some good... Um uh, practical connections to make there. I, I think about when in the uh, end of first Peter, when he's given these community instructions to the older and then to the younger, and he says, all of you then clothe yourselves with humility. And it's this nice image of, of wrapping a towel around yourself. And I think it's deliberately an allusion to um, Jesus at, at washing his disciples' feet, who put a towel around himself and washed the disciples' feet. There's a sense of clothing ourselves with humility that we take it on, but it's it then, you know, enrobes, it envelops us. It becomes the way of our, of the way of being for us. So it's not that I just do humble things, but I embody it. I clothe myself with it so that I become, it's part of who I, my identity is that humility becomes part of my identity. And in, and in doing that, it really takes some, a, a level of faith because our fear, and I'll just be straight. I think our fear in our society is if I don't exert my power in my worldly power, I'm going to get left behind. I'm going to get alienated. I'm going to get pushed to the side. And it is true that people have been marginalized because of that power brokering attitude. And those who've been on the margins actually wind up being the ones who look like Christ, right? So there's something to be said that, hey, that's not the way of the world is is the opposite, right? The way of the world is to try to get all kinds of power and, and, and I'm so afraid of losing it that I have to keep uh, exerting myself over others. I even find Christians doing that. They want to find any passage that makes it look like Jesus was, was, um, was not what he says about himself, that I'm gentle and lowly of heart and uh, you can come and, you know, and, and take my yoke on you that we almost don't want him to have said that. We want him to say, look, I came to fight and, and I want you to fight in, in the way of the world. And he never said it that way. <laughs> yeah, almost like um, if we see the real Jesus, that there's something shameful and un-American about that. Well, that's well said. I mean, that's Isaiah 53, right? There's nothing beautiful to look at. There's, um, uh, he's uh, not, not, not a figure that you would celebrate in any worldly sense that way. Um, but he takes on us, takes his pain on us. I mean, takes our pain on him. And uh, I, yeah, you hit it. I think it's definitely un-American. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, who who wants to worship a weak God, right? Yeah. Oh, uh, but man. but but the I- until you've suffered or been marginalized or oppressed, um, or somehow just come to a place where you've got no game, no, the idea of a weak God doesn't seem very compelling or attractive. But yeah. when you have been in a place where you've been in the margins or powerless, the idea of a weak God is. The creator or the universe, the one who put the stars in the sky, he <laughs> is here with me in my powerlessness. And this is how he reveals himself. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I, I, and I would say 
maybe not weak God, if you think of, if people want to say, challenge that notion of power, but a vulnerable God, you know, a yes, God who, yes. yeah, who places himself in, well, as the, as the Philippians 2 passage says, he emptied himself and took on the form of a slave, um, you know, in a human form, uh, took on that identity and, and in doing so becomes vulnerable, right? Becomes obedient unto death, even death on a cross. So I do think that there, there's a fear in that movement that we, we will lose the, the power that the world craves. We have a very competitive society. And if we lose our competitive edge, we somehow think, in fact, I've watched evangelicalism and I think evangelicalism plays into often the very competitive way of the world. We have to kind of get our, get our voice out there. We have to get ahead. We have to compete in the same term as the world. And I think that's opposite of the way Jesus maneuvered. And he says, don't be like the Gentiles. I mean, don't, don't look for power this way. Don't lord it over people. I mean, there's a very counter-cultural way of being. And here's the principle that goes from Old Testament into the Apocrypha, into the New Testament, into the Apostolic Fathers. It goes over and over again. It says, God gives grace to the humble, and he is anti the proud. He's anti, right? He is, he re, some translations will say he resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And th- those passages, that travels all throughout the Bible, and even into the apostolic fathers who start to apply it into into their and in, in, interacts with the rest of the world. That seems to be a very transcendent um, value that I feel like we miss. That God opposes; He is anti the proud. Yeah, and in some of the thinking and writing I've done around this, there's a reason for that uh, because God's own heart is humble. But if if we look at the opposite of humility. I think that we would maybe use words like arrogant, haughty, but I arrive at self-sufficient. So self-sufficient is this idea of I don't need other, I don't need God. Pride is no thanks, I'm good. I've got plenty of resources. So if you look at the Isaiah 55, 1 through 5 passage about come all you who have no money, come by and eat the richest of fare. There's people that say I'm broke, I've got nothing. Uh, I'm impoverished, to use St. Teresa of Lisieux's words, that our, our poverty is our capacity for God. And then there's people that go, oh, nope, I'm good. I can, I can cover this. And then God says, well, that's not how my economy works. There's a different currency. And the currency in the economy is humility. Because if self-sufficiency is pride, then humility is the only possible ontological, existential way that we can actually receive from God. So it's almost like God is saying, here's how I work. Um, You won't need me. You can't receive. You won't need to receive if you're proud because you're doing it on your own. But humility, that's the space where you'll be, be, be able to open up and receive all of my gifts and grace and blessings. Yeah, well said. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom. I Amen. just think you, you just, you just really, uh, explain that very well. I think that's the way God operates. Yeah. Um, let's shift gears because I, I mentioned mm-hmm. Beth Moore and the reason oh, why yeah. I mentioned her is that, uh, last night she tweeted some things about how she's perceiving a lack of humility, um, mm. in leaders that, that led to her making this, uh, mm. decision and the defensiveness and the kind mm. of doubling down in the SBC denomination and beyond that. But you've done some writing recently. Um, you're now a regular columnist for Christianity Today. Mm-hmm. And tell me, Dennis, is it seasoned salt? Is that that's, the name? That's correct. Seasoned with an E-D. Yep. <laughs> seasoned okay. salt. <laughs> and if you go to your website, Reverend Dr. D-R-E, uh, Dennis R. Edwards, ReverendDrDRE.com, yeah, Rev. you can Dr. find Gray. a... Find, yeah, find a part there and click on it, and it'll take mm-hmm. you to all those articles. Season That's salt. right. That's right. Thank you. But talk about how you've been processing why people are leaving organizations and what's good about that. Yeah. You know, the, the, the weird thing is I don't, I don't ever think church should be um, – uh, should thwart our human uh, flourishing and our in our spirit. At least I, I don't. I mean, obviously, church helps to correct things that are wrong in our lives. I mean, it helps us to get, to stay 
on the right track with Jesus. But honestly, some Christian organizations, I mean, I'll just be frank, have been toxic. They have uh, demeaned humans, uh, uh, women in some cases, ethnic minorities in some cases. I mean, we, we could go back to that whole marginalization. When I talk about being marginalized, I often mean it's Christians that are marginalizing others. So when you leave as a marginal person, marginalized person, when you leave those organizations, on the one hand, it can be life-giving for you, even though it was traumatic to leave. You know, it was hard. There's been an exodus of African-Americans from white or so-called multicultural churches. There's been an exodus of uh, some black uh, people and maybe other uh, minority groups from white uh, organizations. And in that, we tended to you know, I had to do some soul searching before we left and all that. And, and we, we found some new life, but I'm, my challenge though, is to say those organizations that had the exodus, you know, had folks leave, they could theoretically find new life as well. And, uh, if they were to pay attention to the prophetic voices of those who left, in other words, people don't leave for nothing. Uh, at least in, in, in the grand, uh, in, I mean, in the aggregate, going across and looking at, at uh, what's happened. So I think there's often a lack of uh, humility on the part of organizations to say, what is it that we are doing or not doing or saying or not saying or however, whatever, how is our way of being um, oppressive to some? And and if they decide that they they're comfortable with that oppression, well, then. You know, so be it. But if they honestly think that it shouldn't be that way, then it really means change in some substantive way. I mean, and I so my my hope is that when people leave, whether they're prominent people like Beth Moore or or even people don't who aren't so well known, that the organizations will stop instead of demonizing those people will say, why is it that that we are seeing this exodus? What is it about? what we're saying or doing or teaching or or what our unspoken values might be that might need to be uh, re reassessed you know um that's that's Dennis on a good day hoping that <laughs> that organizations will be that way i mean i could be cynical and say all oh, these places you know and sometimes i guess you do have to shake the dust off your feet to take that biblical metaphor but most of the time i'm hopeful most of the time that that the structures will stop and say, what is it that, um, that, that we are communicating really that is not Christ-like? Yeah, and that that would be done uh, beyond the purposes of rebranding. Like, how can we, you know, how exactly. can we present ourselves in a more fresh way? So back to the uh, practical, <laughs> hypothetical fantasy of humility. <laughs> you know, what would it be like if the top three leaders in the SBC, and I'm not picking on them. This yeah, is just what's yeah. current. The top three leaders and the past seven presidents of the SBC sat down with Beth Moore and five mm. other women and said, mm. for the next three days, we're going to listen and take mm. notes. And wow. we simply want to hear you and to know your pain and your concerns, and we're not going to respond. Um, and then before we leave, We'd like you to pray for us, you women to pray for us, uh, because we need wisdom. And, and again, whether that ever happens or not, that seems to be the biblical Jesus model of leadership. And it seems so rare. It, it is rare. And I mean, I don't know what that would look like. You, you just outlined a kind of a, a formula in a way that on the one hand, shouldn't be fearful for people to engage in. I mean, on the one hand, it's relatively easy, uh, I think, to listen. But on the other hand, I think for some people, it would mean, uh, are they changing their theological views? Are they going, you know, uh, uh, people who firmly don't believe that women should preach? Are they changing all their stances and all that? And I, and I feel like, my goodness, it's, I'm, I'm not sure why there's always that zero sum, all or nothing kind of way of thinking that, that, a lot of evangelicals seem to have. But I think what you pose is at least, at the very least, a sign that we respect you as a sister in Christ or sisters in Christ, and we want to um, to somehow see how we can grow and share together. Now, I know for some people that's not enough. I mean, the fact that SBC and other denominations don't affirm women in, in pastoral leadership is is a deal breaker. 
And it would be for me, I mean, as far as is as serving in that denomination. But I would also say it doesn't stop me from conversations with people in denominations where I don't have, you know, 100 percent agreement on everything. I consider myself pretty ecumenical. So to me, I think it would be a, a, a sign of humility, you know, to say I can listen and learn from what our sisters are saying or anybody else that's leaving the denomination. I, I tell you, man, I, I don't want to go by Twitter, but a lot of what happens on Twitter is there's a lot of, you know, throwing stones back and forth. And I just find it really unhelpful. And I and I am convinced on some level that people who don't know the Lord, and this come back to your earlier point about um, the witness we have, is that they're they're saying, look, those Christians talk about Jesus and, and peace and love and all that, and I don't know if it's there or not. Right, right. And I think there's a temptation, Dennis, to mm-hmm. want to guarantee an outcome. So uh, the the women that have been disenfranchised from having a place in leadership, I'm not saying that Beth or others in particular would say this, but you know there has to be this outcome for us to come to the table and talk, and for the the male leaders to say, well, we'll go through the motions of listening, but we kind of already know the outcome. And what I heard you say is it's certainly outcomes can be important, but the process is as if not more important, because people would look at that and say, look how they get along. They might radically differ, but there's a process that they're doing that we don't really see anywhere else. They listen to one another. They care. They sit down and attend to one another's pain. Oh, Michael, you know, you, what you just said has got me thinking about what we said about humility, because Humility, and maybe I don't want to overstate this, but I'm feeling this, is that humility is maybe a willingness to let go of the outcome, you know, because there's a sense that if we, if when we try to control the outcomes or uh, it's, 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 there's something that um, we feel like we're going to lose in that, you know, and, uh, and maybe humility says, I'm not going to control the or try to control the outcome. And because there's a vulnerability in that we were talking about earlier vulnerability. And I think that that's maybe there's something to be said for that. I, I have found that uh, within certain branches of Christianity and evangelicalism in particular, there does seem to be a need to control the outcome. Um, uh, I've seen it in everything from how we message about events to how we manage crises um, you know, it's one of the things that irks me a great deal. My wife knows this is that, you know, we, there's almost a joke when you hear a, pa- when you say a, a pastor says something like, well, evangelistically speaking, we have a little joke because they tend to make the outcome sound way better than what it is. How many people responded? I, I've known organizations that have some horrible stuff, but of course, in the, in the letters they write to their supporters, they, they mask all of that or push it down somewhere. And I'm not saying you have to air all kinds of dirty laundry. But again, it's that notion that we have to manage things in the way that the world does to say, to, to kind of give an image of success, an image of power, an image of control. And I just think that's, that is, is not Christ-like. I mean, I'll just to say it that simply. So I, I do feel like we lose something when we try to manage those kinds of outcomes. Yeah. It's funny how this conversation, it's like I, I see something and you say that that's stirring up a thought for you, and then you say something and that stirs up a thought for me. <laughs> that's good. But I like that, man. <laughs> back to the um, idea of outcomes. In psychotherapy, oh. there's this phrase of uh, a person is, an at- is they're attached to an outcome. Oh. So let's say that uh, I have to get my Ph.D., and in my story, my listeners know this, but I was in a Ph.D. program. I did 70 credits had a very high GPA, and then I was diagnosed with complex post-traumatic stress disorder and took a couple of years to try to figure out how I was going to navigate it. I dropped out of the PhD program. I took a second master's. And so there was a struggle for me of, man, if I don't get this degree, then who am I? I'm not going to be Dr. Cusick. I'm just going to be a regular guy, on and on and on. But in therapy, if a person is attached to an outcome and that outcome doesn't happen, they will either become angry depressed or anxious. Yeah. Uh, the, the anxiety is in the place between uh, cause and effect of, is this going to come about? Can I make it happen? What if, what if I don't get in or finish my degree? 
the anger is when it's blocked, when it's yeah. shut down, when you yeah. can't get there. And then the depression is usually when, because of the goal being blocked, I might be angry, but then I just kind of give up. It's a kind of learned helplessness, mm. uh, learned powerlessness. And it seems to me, uh, as we're in the conversation, that the the dark side of the church, because of course there's a profound sense of light and kingdomness that right, is always right. there and that's emerging. But the dark side of it is that there's fear, anger, and a lot of hopelessness, just kind of yeah. throwing up your arms saying, you know, I don't know how to change things. You know, that, oh, that's heavy, man. I, I really am learning from you right now. I didn't know that that was a therapeutic kind of expression. So let me ask you, and from a therapeutic standpoint, what, how do you help people to negotiate their attachment to their outcome? Do you do you have them adjust to a new set of possibilities or how do you how do you help to move them to to not be attached to an outcome? Uh, that's the big question. Um, okay. And so, some of this kind of comes from Buddhist and Eastern thought that okay. I think, frankly, is also very Judeo-Christian. Mm. Um, it's it's the idea of trusting. And I would make a distinction between two D words, um, a desire which is, let's go back to the analogy of me getting a PhD, my mm-hmm. desire, my longing, my legitimate hope of yeah, getting yeah. this degree versus right. a demand. Ah. So I have to do this. And if I don't do it, then I, you know, I will implode. I can't be happy. So I have to make a certain amount of money or I have to drive a certain kind of car, or I have to be married to a wife who looks a certain kind of way. Yeah. Uh, whatever those things are, if there's a demand, then there's a requirement that that has to happen. And now we're into the category of idolatry. Gotcha. So the, the longing is my heart is actually free at that point to pursue this. If it happens, great. If it doesn't, I'll be disappointed, but I'm okay. But when we cross into the demand or the requirement, then our heart becomes bound to that outcome and that, that end point. And so helping people to see the difference between that longing or desire and a demand. And in my work with addiction and pornography in particular, from my own background, I was utterly unaware of the desires that were there and, and yet was being completely fueled by being attached to the comfort, the pseudo intimacy, the power that would come with engaging with those kinds of things. Um, and of course, that's all self-sufficiency. So when people begin to see the distinction between those two, then they can begin to ask the question, well, what would it be like to not get that, accomplish that, uh, et cetera. Well, that would be awful. That would feel like death. Well, then, whether I'm a believer or unbeliever, how can I find a space inside of myself where I would be less distressed, uh, less imploded, exploded? And then that, yeah. that requires an inner wrestling, um, a sense of growing, relinquishing some of our coping strategies, but especially attending to our embodiment and how our nervous system gets dysregulated and that kind of thing. Oh my, this is, this is helpful. I mean, in my own uh, therapeutic journey, I've, I've, have been learning a lot about mindfulness and, and, um, and paying attention to my body and therapists have helped me with that. And what you say is in line with that. I like this desires versus demands. There's something about how our bodies respond that I hadn't paid attention to before because I'm, you know, often in my head, I'm thinking, thinking, thinking. But then I had to re- had to feel had to learn how to feel and then pay attention to what I I mean I was feeling but I had to pay attention to how I was feeling and be sensitive to that. Um, so I like what you're saying because there only there's so many levels to it because I think it works on a personal but also a, a corporate level. I see it like in churches that want to uh, maybe this was prior to the pandemic but it might happen after the pandemic want to relive certain glory days. So there's a sense that it has to be the way it was when we had, you know, X number of people here and we had this great preacher and, and there's a lot of pastors I know of and who have been called to churches to sort of revive them and get them to, you know, to relive these glory days. And, it, and it creates this, this pressure on everybody that the, that these desires, I guess, become sort of demands that has to be a certain way. 
Um, so they haven't grieved the past. They haven't grieved the loss. And then they haven't figured out how, how things could be different. I think that's true on an interpersonal level. And I definitely think that's true in a, an organizational level. And sometimes I think when folks leave, um, you know, we don't always get to hear why they're leaving, you know, because even when I was a pastor, my last church, people were leaving when I had some staff changeover. And that was very hard for me because I took it all as, you know, uh, an indictment against my leadership. And in some cases it was uh, folks just didn't like those changes and it hurt me a lot. And sometimes we did have an opportunity to talk to people about why they were leaving and you could learn something in that uh, you could either reinforce certain values or you could let some things go. Um, but not everybody will tell you. So for me, it's important to to have what you were just saying earlier, that conversation where you're willing to be open and vulnerable and honest and receive what uh, folks are saying. I mean, that's that encapsulates so much of what I've been thinking about humility. So thank you for that. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, just one other one other thought, because I have sure. the sense we could keep going and going with this. And then <laughs> and then I want to transition to sure. your, your podcast, which I oh, only yeah. recently learned about. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, humility, when it says he opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I, I try not to use this word very often, but supernatural. And I believe that humility is what opens the door to the supernatural. And when people are attached to an outcome, they have to go back to the glory days, or it has to be this way. It really um, doesn't make room for the Spirit of God to come in, and it it doesn't allow for there to be a God-provided alternative. So, you know, we have to catch a certain number of rams and bulls in the desert today, or we're all going to starve. If that's the outcome, then it doesn't make room for manna to be delivered. And, um, I, I think that that's another reason for humility is that we're not trusting in our ability to to wield our intellect or our power to bring about a certain outcome, but we're we're bringing ourselves to a place of ceasing, listening, and then allowing God to bring something into that. Hmm. I say, Amen. Um, I one fear I have in in my approach to. Uh, um, humility is that folks who have been on the margins, right, might say, well, Dennis, are you saying that we can't advocate or we can't um, uh, strive to have our voices be heard or can't, um, you know, speak up and, and show some agency? Um, I, I No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. But I would say that my my caution in all of that is is just that in our seeking to raise our voices to um, be heard. And I say this in my, from the margins, I don't want us to think that our power comes from quote unquote, the world. I don't want, I don't want to give the impression that, that would, we have to model our strategies after, um, after the world. So what you just said about humility, opening the door for the supernatural, that's what I'm trying to say is that we embrace this power that comes even in our marginal status. The power comes is supernatural. It's got to be from God. Uh, and that's that's really what I'm getting at. And that's why it's transformative. That's why it can change the the, the, the way we do uh, Christianity, if we want to say it like that, where we practice the faith is because it is God that's doing the uh, the lifting is God that's bring, giving the grace is God that is elevating uh, those who have been uh, marginalized. Yeah, and I, and I think um, it's just important to add to that when you talked about how sometimes we can um, misunderstand what humility looks like. That mm-hmm. that there's people that are in places of power that humility would look in almost the classical sense of. I like to encourage leaders sometimes in my kind of behind closed doors work of, of giving a, a, a leader with a big platform an assignment to go pick up trash anonymously for half a day and not tell anybody and to not use it as a sermon illustration just so that they can be nobody and feel the humility of going and picking up trash and not telling anybody. And then struggling with how bad they want to tell somebody and realizing <laughs> that realizing now, now the only reason I've, I've done this with mm-hmm. people is because I've done it myself and now see how wonderful I am. I'm not being humble, but, but truly there's people that need to step down. And then I think there's people 
that they go, well, who am I? And they need to step up and they need to have a voice and they need to say, hey, preacher, would you mind if I stepped up on Sunday morning and shared my testimony about what God's doing or I want to lead a Bible study or I want to go start something? So sometimes humility, from my perspective, looks like a person being bigger than they are because they really are bigger than they've been told who they are. And sometimes humility is a person saying, you know what? This platform, the books I've written, those are really not who I am. I'm just hummus. I'm just earth. And so I can go pick up trash. And that's not me being Jesus-like. That's me actually being human. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's well said. I, 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 I want to... I, I want to think about it more because I have struggled myself in that. Um, how much do I elevate myself, you know? And uh, but that's a dentist thing. That's not even a uh, a theological notion right now because <laughs> I I find myself agreeing with you. But I'm being I'm being honest that that's been a struggle for me. Um, and I think part of it has just been the way I was, you know. Unfortunately, the way my childhood went is that I I often had to diminish myself. I had to you know, push myself to the side or I had to keep my mouth shut or, or somehow deny some aspect of myself. And, uh, so I never really learned how to assert myself in those ways, in those healthy ways. Right. So I don't want to make that a theological thing because it might be a personal dysfunction, but what you just said about, um, putting ourselves where we ought to be or, or entering into those doors or raising the, the voice, um, I want to say amen to that. I think that that's right. And God has used people who were, uh, you know, servants. You know, just think, think, think about that Old Testament story with, with Naaman, the guy who had leprosy, and he was told by the prophet uh, Elijah to go, you know, bathe in the Jordan. And he had an attitude about it because he says, look, this, you know, we got rivers over here in Syria. Why do I have to go uh, to the Jordan and do that? And And it was a servant who said, you know, you know, Lord, he didn't ask you to do anything hard, you know, and, uh, and, and it's those people that sometimes we don't know their names. We don't know anything about them much, but they show up in the scriptures and they show up in our lives. Uh, people who, who don't have the platform, but they're the voice of God, you know, in certain ways. And so they, we do have to speak up. We do have to assert, we have to be that voice of God, um, uh, to and that's part of humility too. I think you're right. <laughs> you know, I'm 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 treading into very personal ground here, mm-hmm. but um, you talked about either the theological aspect of this or mm-hmm. dysfunction, and I want to say that there's another another mm-hmm. part of this, and that yeah. is our wounding, the ways that we've been hurt. And you even talked about on one of our last podcasts how you were at a church and by you stepping up and being who you really are in leadership and taking a stand for those kids or the neighborhood kids, yeah. if I recall, That's right. that then you were, you were wounded for that and criticized and rejected. And then as a black man, we've talked about this over two conversations now. There's just not an inherent sense of less than because you're made in God's image just like I am, but that sociological, racist, yeah, cultural yeah. aspect where right. you're constantly being wounded by that. Right. And then that affects um, the perspective. And and yeah. isn't it all theological? Because then that becomes the grid or the yes. lens yes. by which we see God and everything else. Oh, oh, thank you. Thank you for understanding and recognizing that. And which is which is I think why it's been hard for me as I've been working on this book, because I realize that there are things that I believe and things that I see in Scripture, but I haven't necessarily felt them in my body or in my person or in my experience um, because, yeah, the way society has been or organizations have been or certain church contexts and even my family, my family of origin. I mean, those things have often conspired uh to make it difficult for me at times to see the way God really is. So when I write, I want to be honest, but I do want to be, um, I don't want that to um, deny the reality of, of scriptural truth, you know, or of what's being said in the passage, even if I didn't, even if I'm on the journey of understanding it better or feeling it better, I don't want, I don't want my, uh, my exegesis to be clouded by, my personal pain, but that woundedness 
is real, like you just said, and maybe in some ways we use it, like you know, Nuan's uh, Nuan's uh, wounded healer kind of image, and we use that woundedness in good ways, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, and and so I am your student, I am your apprentice, but let me gently and respectfully push back. Oh, okay. In terms of the exegesis, I would argue. It's not the ultimate lens, but it's precisely, precisely your pain and your wounding and my pain and wounding that leads us to have these kinds of perspectives that would otherwise be missed. And, And I have no problem saying this, but it's precisely the unacknowledged, unaddressed, and unknown wounding of the leaders of the SBC or whoever else that's oppressing that that's leading to their toxic policies that they can't humble themselves. So only people... Um, and I'm not elevating us because everyone's wounded, but only people that have pressed into those wounds and mm-hmm. come to need Jesus does the wound actually become the lens through which uh, we see the light of Christ in Scripture. So I would argue that the reason why you are so brilliant at your exegesis and what you wrote mm-hmm. in Might for the Margins is the wound that you carry. The wound mm-hmm. becomes the gift. The wound becomes the power. And that's true even in your scholarly and your academic work. Oh, wow, man, you're going you're to make me cry. I think uh, <laughs> I didn't mean to mess with you today. No, I, that, that's a good messing with. I, that was really good. That was really good. Um, and, you know, cause you got me thinking. I mean, I'm just feeling about 30 years of ministry. I think about some of my most powerful sermons as well as writing projects have really been when I've leaned into the woundedness. Oh my goodness. Thank you. I like that. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. And so it comes right back to that, that God most powerfully reveals himself on the cross. And that's the revelation of who God is, that that God chooses humiliation to say, this is the kind of God that I'm like, that the most powerful force in the universe can become, for the sake of love, uh, the the weakest, most vulnerable force in the universe. Yeah, yeah. Amen. Amen. We, oh my goodness, it's just so un-American. We just can't have that. We have to win. We have to win. And, uh, and you know, so we we almost... It's like every Good Friday, ser- you know, sermons. I used to be part of these seven sayings of Christ from the cross, and a lot of, lot of Good Friday churches, I mean, churches do that on Good Friday. And um, in a lot of African-American tradition, it would be a three-hour service, you know, from 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 noon to three, you know, would be the time that Christ was on the cross. It would be a long service. And the preachers who got the loudest amens rushed us to Easter, you know, because they, they couldn't sit with Good Friday, and I don't think the congregation could always sit with Good Friday. And uh, and what you just did is you kept making us, you, you just made us look at Good Friday. And uh, and and I think it's it's good in hindsight, but it it's it's that we see Christ, we see God in Christ on the cross, like you said. And uh, and yes, there's Easter. We got to sit with Good Friday. We have to sit with the confusion of saturday and and then we can celebrate the resurrection so so in the christ uh, hymn that i was talking about philippians 2 a so-called hymn with he emptied himself became obedient unto death you know death on the cross but then we rushed to and then god super exalted him and gave him a name that's above every name well that's true that's part of it but there's but we can't rush there <laughs> you know i guess in some ways so yeah mm. that's yeah i appreciate that well, this has been um, just like the other two, but they keep getting better and better. Just a wonderful conversation, and I feel oh, so stimulated by it. Yeah. I want to just um, – we're going to have you back and do a mm. whole uh, episode on your podcast because it's oh. the ING, I-N-G podcast, Leading, Growing, and Being. Mm-hmm. Say just a word about mm. uh, what the podcast is about. Yeah, well, I share I share hosting duties with a couple of other folks uh, from Minnow Media. Uh, Minnow Media is uh, is is the big uh, is the umbrella over Herald Press, the ones who publish Might from the Margins. And uh, so, what we try to do is get it in touch with various Christian workers and leaders. And uh, and the ING, of course, turns everything into a participle. That's the idea, right? So we learn 
learn about uh, everything, leading, growing, uh any other participle you can think of, right? <laughs> so, um, so I had, I think the first interview I did was with, uh, uh Sung Chan Ra, who, um, has, has been a prophet in many ways for, for evangelicalism and pushing folks to be more inclusive and to see some, uh, blind spots related to power and such. So the, the podcast has been a cross section of leaders, writers, um, uh, activists, um, scholars, pastors, and we've tried to get a sense of how they might help the church as, as a whole if we would listen. And and many of them are come from an Anabaptist uh, perspective because Menno Media is, you know, related to the Mennonite church. So you'll find there, but not exclusively. So I'll just say it that way. Um, so, yeah, I appreciate you saying it. And folks can uh, can check out my website, RevDrDre.com, and you'll see links to the podcast, to my writings with Christianity Today, and uh, to things I've been able to have published. Well, uh, Dr. Dennis Edwards, I want to thank you again. Uh, as I said, I'm just I'm stimulated and challenged and encouraged, but I so, so, so appreciate not just the work you do, but even on this conversation, your vulnerability, um, especially at the end here as we're talking more about yeah. our mutual woundedness and things like that. So blessings to you and all you're doing. God bless you. Thank you. I, I do always enjoy our conversations. I hope we can meet in real life at some time. <laughs> Me too. That's going to be fantastic. So thank you for listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. What we're all about is helping couples and individuals get unstuck. You know how some people go to counseling or marriage therapy for months or even years and never really get anywhere? Our intensive programs help clients get unstuck in as little as two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com.